Do you guys remember that scene from, uh, there's an Edward James Almost movie called Stand and Deliver? I know I'm dating myself. But it goes like this. Amazing teacher steps into a struggling classroom in a Los Angeles city school and motivates a group of students to pass the AP calculus exam in spite of the many challenges they face in their lives. So Lou Diamond Phillips shows up, who ironically is not Mexican-American. He's Filipino, but he shows up as a gangster Mexican-American from the street in L.A. who can't pronounce calculus. Hey, Kimo, you proud of me? I'm the first dude here. It's not a great movie. What's calculus? I think the best part about it is that probably of all of the movies over time that take place within the four walls of a classroom, it's one of the only ones I can remember, certainly from my time, where the protagonist is not a sort of white savior who walks into a city classroom and turns everything around. Edward James Olmos is actually a Mexican-American, which makes it maybe a little bit more palatable. But this is all kind of besides the point. The reason it came to mind for me is that after I had a conversation with these folks... My name is Sarah Vogel, and I am a research assistant with the Participating in Literacies and Computer Science Project. Hey, my name is Karen Sofa. I'm a New York City public school teacher. Um, I teach science at IS-143. Uh, for the past 19 years. Well, I'm Chris Hoadley. I'm a faculty member at New York University in the Educational Technology Programs. Uh, Okay. My name is Christy Crawford. I'm the Director of Computer Science for All for the New York City Department of Education. I started to imagine what Stand and Deliver might look like in a context where the Edward James Olmos and maybe some other practitioners at the school had translanguaging as a tool in their pocket. Thinking about how language is incorporated into the context of students every day, not as a parallel way of understanding, but as one where all of the language in a young person's life can play an equal part in making meaning. That to me feels like translanguaging, but I'm still learning. I hope you all will stick around for this conversation and learn more with me. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Whoa, not so fast. If you enjoyed the show, can you do me a favor? Head back to where you downloaded it, like, rate, and review it. It makes a huge deal. Then head over to Facebook, like our page. It's No Such Thing Podcast on Facebook. Thanks. Sarah, I'm going to play something for the group. And then I want to start with you in response, just so that you're ready. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Power really is in the language, right? Not in the speaker. Translanguaging does away with the language hierarchies and returns the power to the speaker, not to the nation state, but to the speaker. What do speakers do? And that's why we have only one box that has no hierarchical relationships. And we're talking about um, features that are not, that is, uh, internal, uh, internally we have, that are not <clears throat> L1 and L2 and L3. They're ends, they're ours, right? So Sarah, this is one of the really cool parts of doing this show is I get to research these topics that we're talking about. And Ophelia Garcia, who is a professor at CUNY and um, has some outstanding content that uh, these are some lectures that she's given at different universities that I will link to in the show notes for the show. But can you tell us what she's talking about there? Um, this was a lecture that she gave, I believe, over overseas in 2017. And she makes a really, really important point that I think is a nice way to start a conversation about translanguaging. 
Absolutely. And it was so gratifying to see that clip. Um, Ophelia Garcia, Dr. Ophelia Garcia is someone who I hold really close in my heart. She's been a mentor of mine um, over the last five years doing my PhD and um, is really somebody who's rocked my thinking about language. And I think potentially a good way to get us thinking about this might be um, a little bit of my journey into it. So I was a bilingual teacher back in 2009 and 10. Um, and in that context, my job was to teach Spanish. And I had two different ways that I was supposed to teach Spanish. There was one group of kids where I was supposed to teach, quote, Spanish as a foreign language. And one group of kids where I was supposed to teach Spanish as literacy. So the one that got literacy was the bilingual class of students. So students who use Spanish at home and um, maybe were learning English. And then the other group was supposedly a group of students who were learning Spanish for the first time. Now, this is East Harlem, where language and bilingualism are part of the fabric of the community. And so trying to make a distinction between these two groups is one of the follies that Ophelia Garcia is pointing to in this quote. She says there, right, we're privileging named languages over people. Hmm. That's what the program at my old school did by saying, this is the kind of Spanish that these folks get because they don't know Spanish. And these are the, this is the kind of Spanish that people get because they do know it. But everybody, the people in the room, have rich and dynamic language backgrounds and resources. So it's not about privileging this named language that we call Spanish or English, which is, exists in a kind of dictionary way. It's about privileging the people and the dynamic ways that they use language. And that's really what translanguaging is out to do. It's out to center speakers and the way that they might um, bring in all of the resources that they know, and those might include resources that are linguistic, um, that might include semiotic resources, so the kinds of resources you use with your body. Uh, you can't tell on this podcast, I'm gesturing a lot with my hands, I do that. Um, that might also include what people do with technology, drawing, music. There's so many different ways that people communicate. And in a person, those come together in really fluid and dynamic ways. Translanguaging tries to recognize that and not privilege as much the kinds of categories that have come from, we can talk about this later, sort of like histories of colonialism. These mm -hmm. named languages come from those settings. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll leave it there as sort of an entree into maybe what Dr. Garcia was getting at in those, in those points. So Karen Silfa is yeah. um, teacher with the New York City Department of Education. She's been in a middle school setting. I don't know if for your entire career of 19 years, Karen, but um, can you share a little bit what – just describe how what Sarah is describing has meant to you in your practice and how that's evolved for you over 19 years? Yes. Um, I started um... – teaching a bilingual class, actually. And I remember I was placed uh, 19 years ago in this class just because I knew Spanish. Um, I was teaching science to that class, but you know, I had no idea what translanguaging was. I didn't come from an education background then, so I was taking courses in education as I was teaching. And about, I would say, 10 years ago, is where um, I learned about this term the first time. But I saw that I was using it, even though I didn't know the name, the label, I was using it in my class because I would use my body to explain things to the kids, you know, either in Spanish or in English, because I also taught the English class as well. But I had students, ESL students in my English class. Hmm. Um, so I was using it. So even though I didn't know the label before, I was using translanguaging and the kids were using all their resources as well in order to communicate. Um, and now, uh, during the past five years, I have Arabic kids and it's been more challenging because I don't know the language. So they're also using their resources in order to communicate and explain things to me. Mm. So. Can you give an example when you say you were using your body 
mm-hmm. uh, to sort of bridge the gap between things. Can you just give give that example for somebody who might like me be like? Hmm. Okay, so for example, um, in my class, uh, we were doing a project in computer science about rain um, and um, the water cycle. I'm sorry, and so they were. They were trying to make um, computer science codes, and in order to, before they were starting to code, they had to make a plan of mm. how they're going to, you know, write these codes. So they were using um, their body in order to explain step by step how was they were going to write the code, and they were drawing um, in Spanish and in English using, you know, the words. Spanish and in English to in order to write the code. So that is an example hmm. that I have of, of how they use their all their resources in order to communicate. Yeah. So um, we have uh, we have lots of voices in this conversation, and there's a good there's a good reason for that, right? We're we're part of the sort of uh, one of the values. I guess I, I proposed in this show early on was that we weren't going to, we were going to do everything I can to not have uh, big ideas conversations or theoretical conversations without having practitioners and perspectives in the room that can sort of round, round that out and, um, and really dig into make, make that a uh, more authentic dialogue. Chris, uh, you're somebody who, for a very long time, has been in this space. Um, you were faculty when I was uh, at NYU, and and somebody who has been um, a part of how we learn in the in the digital age broadly for a long time. You've spent time as a reviewer at the NSF. Um, you've done all kinds of things, and. I just I want to make I want to bridge early on the conversation about translanguaging um, and help people realize in in why we we would be talking about this in a digital context. Um, sure. What does any of this have to do with whether it's technology we're using to support learning or learning computer science or or other things like what is the the hook there? Sure, Mark. One of the things that um, is most exciting to me about this project is uh, the ways in which translanguaging as a as a lens uh, brings new life into how we think of computer science education. Um, my background in technology and in actually in learning to program goes back to the 1990s. And there was a time when being able to use computers in education really uh, relied on the ability to program the computers because there wasn't so much an ability to just fire up a web browser or download an app. Um, In order to use technology for your own purposes, you had to be able to create it. And so being a a programmer was synonymous with being a a user or author of technology. And when Sarah Vogel and I met and the idea for this project was originally sparked, um, one of the things that got me most excited was that that idea that Ophelia Garcia described so eloquently of uh, remembering that we have to put the people first and that the language um, isn't as neat and tidy as people might want you to think about it, that um, being able to use uh, language for your own purposes is where we should send things, um, really, for me, sparked a connection to what uh, programming code is for. And so uh, one of the questions we often ask in our project is, what conversation is this code a part of? I think there's a lot of good research out there on um, teaching people to program that really focuses on either a um, job skills way of thinking about programming or maybe just more simply trying to teach people indecipherable magical incantations (laughs) to get the computer to do something. Mm -hmm. And um, having come up as a programmer in the early days when uh, there was a lot less formal training and a lot more community around learning to build and use technology, uh, the idea of programming as a way to communicate, of programming as a way to put ideas into a form that can be shared with other people and also uh, acted upon by a computer uh, really overlap nicely with the ideas about how 
translanguaging happens in the New York City schools. So we had these two wonderful um, uh, sort of collisions. One was we knew that New York City was interested in doing computer science for all, making sure that every kid in the um, million plus children in our five boroughs um, actually got a meaningful experience learning how to program. I wanted to have you, Christy, respond a little bit and talk about why this is so important. This this project that Sarah and Chris are describing um, in translanguaging, why is this important to the New York City DOE uh, and CS for all at this at this moment. I think our work with Sarah and Chris is incredibly important at this moment because a lot of our teachers are beginning to understand that education is political, that they may have come into the space without being conscious of how education is used as a political tool. And this puts it into perspective. It also makes us take a look at what we're doing, not just in one subject, but in every subject, especially computer science. There may be a tendency to think of all the good pedagogy that we talk with other subjects isn't at play in computer science. But from Sarah's work, we have all learned so much about how this is more vital than ever. And I just want to add um, that the work in in translanguaging in the New York City Department of Education kind of began a little bit uh, before my time with Dr. Ophelia's, uh, Dr. Ophelia Garcia's project uh, called CUNY NYSEB. Um, And that was a project that thought about how students' dynamic translanguaging practices could be used as resources in their education. And this was a really innovative project because there's been a lot of deficit thinking about especially what um, the system had called at various points in time, limited English proficient. Mm. So think about how that sounds when you call somebody limited for the way that they speak. Or uh, even there was a transition to the English language learner. Think about that term. That term is privileging not who students are, but the language they're learning, Mm -hmm. which is the dominant language of our society, English. Now the the system, the state has moved towards a kind of it, it's multilingual learners slash English language learners. And in our team, we use multilingual learner uh, as well as the term emergent bilingual. So the idea here being that uh, these students have been viewed through a deficit based lens. Um, and uh, that comes because of uh, a lot of different reasons. There's been research and theory written by uh, Dr. Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa in racial linguistics, showing the connections between race and language and the way that the body somebody is in uh, helps determine how that person's language use is viewed. So there's a lot of um, hmm. you know, roots in colonialism and racism in, in terms of how these students have been viewed by these deficit lenses. Um, and so translanguaging through the work in this CUNY NYSEB project was brought in to say, no, students' language practices are assets. The ways that they speak in their communities with their families are assets. Hmm. And um, I also just want to highlight that, that the, the project um, Participating in Literacies in Computer Science is a research practice partnership. Part of it is my research. Part of it is also the research of uh, many folks on our team. Um, as uh, Chris, Chris, our PI, is here on the call, we also have uh, Jasmine Ma from NYU, Laura Shenzi Moreno from Brooklyn College, Kate Mankin from Queens College, and all of um, uh, Karen's colleagues who are, who are teachers. And, and together we think through these kinds of uses of the asset-based lens for um, supporting uh, emergent bilinguals, multilingual learners in, our, in computer science. At some point, we will have to come back to research practice partnership um, on this show because that's a whole conversation in and of itself. Um, I, before we move away from Dr. Garcia's work, I actually want to play one more clip. Um, and this clip kind of summarizes some of some of the – I suppose she's sort of giving the heuristics of um, how translanguaging is sort of brought into practice. And I think it it feels like a really important 
place for us to just sort of um, transition to what this looks like in the context of um, practice. So let's hear from Dr. Garcia one more time. Just to end and to summarize, so translanguaging has to do with dwelling in the border, in these borderlands with the linguistically minoritized. It has to, it's important because it redresses the power differentials and the systems of control that have been installed in the conceptions of languages and sign systems by colonial expansion and nation building. Secondly, it is not simple border crossing, but dwelling in the world and the word entangled through and by the coloniality of power. And, and thirdly, it's going beyond name languages. Idanko. That is a, um, about a 30-second clip. And I've already listened to it about six times because there are so many the, – the world and the word, uh, the linguistically minoritized. There are all these things she says in there that in two or three words are ideas that are just really uh, mind-opening to me. Karen, can you talk a little bit about how – this how this work how translanguaging as a as a frame for um, for what we're talking about has played out in your practice. Just just describe a little bit of um, may, maybe you can give us an example or two of how with a translanguaging frame some of the work you've been doing in the last couple of years has has changed and in ways that maybe would illustrate for people how what Dr. Garcia is describing comes into the classroom. Okay. How has it changed? Um, with the work that I'm doing uh, with Sarah, um, which is uh, computer science for, I integrate computer science in my science class. I see that the kids' literacy has improved um, they are writing um, more coherently. Sometimes, you know, they would just answer like in one phrase. Now their 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 uh, literacy skills are improving. Um, they're using, you know, all the resources that they need in order to express themselves. Um, they feel comfortable in the class. Um, they don't, you know, they don't have any fear to express themselves in the classroom. Um, what else? They basically feel like in my classroom, they're like in a safe place where they could communicate um, themselves. That logo story, how you started with that logo and where that where that ended up. Oh, uh, with the star logo in the first year? Star okay. logo, star, sorry. Yeah, yes. When the first year, it was very difficult because there, um, the platform was only in English. So I couldn't use it with my bilingual students. It was it was difficult. Only uh, for for that year, I was only able to use it with my monolingual students, which was seven hundred one at that time, and it just didn't have access. No no resources um, for them to use in Spanish because the the whole platform was in English, and then the languages that was there, like in order to translate, it was just it was just too difficult. But, you know, once I started the project with Sarah, it was easier because it was in Spanish. And um, and just the way that, you know, everything was said, it was it was just simpler for it was easier for my bilingual students. They weren't afraid to use computer science because Scratch, you could you know, you it, it could be translated in Spanish. The platform. Mm. So, yeah. Is there is there one or two things that um, you. You have been I think I think a lot of times um, to be to be critical and give give one a, a perspective that I think a lot of practitioners have at different points. A lot of times they'll hear a framing like this, translanguaging, and they'll be like, you know, I was doing this forever. 
you know, like, why do I need a bunch of PhD types to step in and call it a thing and give it a bunch of fancy words and, and you know, like extra syllables when I was doing this? Can you just describe the extent to which this framing of translanguaging has been helpful to you? And to what degree is it an extension of things you had been doing? Sarah, for you, as, as somebody who has taught uh, in this context that you described earlier in the show, what's your response to that? How do you feel about being, you're sort of on both sides of this in a way. Um, to what extent do you feel like this is a naming of practices that lots of teachers in settings like you were in have been um, practicing with for years and it's sort of a, a new name for an old thing versus to what extent do you think that the the framing of translanguaging is helping to to pull along practice? Like what is the, the push-pull there? So I think that because it, it is a practice that teachers do, like teachers like Karen, um, who are who are especially teachers who are bilingual themselves, but it's a practice that many teachers do covertly, mm. meaning it's unsanctioned by their schools and by the program models for bilingual education that they might be in. So for instance, you might have a program that's called English as a New Language, where English is supposedly the center. And if students are speaking languages other than English in that room, if an administrator were to walk in, they would say, well, what's going on here? The goal here is English. Or you have program models that we would view as a little bit more progressive, um, such as a dual language model, which still have that strict separation between languages, where on Tuesdays we speak English, on Wednesdays we speak Spanish, and there's a real strict separation between how those two things happen. Mm -hmm. Now, teachers forever, um, since, I mean, we've got Puerto Rican activists, especially in the 60s, fighting for bilingual education. Those teachers have traditionally educated their students bilingually, but they do so with the door closed. So mm. they might use... Um, you know, resources from English, resources from Spanish. They might um, speak in the way that we know our communities speak dynamically, um, but they have to do it without it being sanctioned. So what translanguaging does is not only provide a name, and as Karen said, sort of an awareness that this is a legitimate strategy that can be used to promote learning, but also it gives permission for those teachers who know their kids well to really bring out um, and build on the resources that they bring. Great. Christy, I want to bring in a, um, a new dimension to this conversation and let's, let's, uh, role play that we're somewhere in the, uh, administrative offices where you are sitting at a table full of people describing this project and somebody, somebody pipes in and said, Oh, uh, this is like code switching. Um, how do you respond to that? To what extent are they right? And to what extent are they wrong? It's funny. I think the debate will change depending, of course, on the audience and on the time period. Um, it is like code switching, but this is just, it should be something that's so natural and so ingrained, um, I shouldn't even have to put the code switching term on it anymore. There is something about code switching that, you know what, before the last couple of weeks, we bothered to give it this huge label because of what you were permitted to do, because what we knew was socially acceptable. Mm. And at this point, I feel like we are moving into a world where respectability politics is going out of the window and some of that some of the, the term code switching might even leave us but it is what karen and sarah kept talking about it is not having to have permission to do what you did naturally there was a time when all of us were sneak teaching you just closed your door and you did it mm. but this is real muscle not to have, not to use the term 
code switching, but muscle to do what you know is right and what will stick with you. Yeah. So can you just describe, Christy, what, for somebody who doesn't know the term code switching, what do somebody who, excuse me, somebody who uh, knows, knows or professes to know what code switching is, what do they typically think of when they think of code switching? Sure. There are some folks that will say code switching is I'm talking for people differently depending on my audience. Sometimes it's what that audience needs to hear to make them comfortable. Sometimes it's knowing that I can't communicate with that person in any other way and they may not hear me. So I think lots of teachers are used to the thought of Ebonics, of code switching, of children talking different ways at different times. If I could add to that definition, um, because there's the way that a lot of folks will think of it, and that's the way that Christie's described it. Linguists have to have their own definition for everything. Um, in the fields of linguistics and language, code switching also refers to this idea of taking what would be viewed as two different codes or languages, for example, English and Spanish, and mixing them together um, so that if somebody says, um, like, yo voy a parquear el coche, I'm going to park the car, right? People would look at that and say, oh, that's not pure English. That's not pure Spanish. That's something else. And there's been, you know, efforts to think about Spanglish and claiming that identity. But in linguistics, it's seen as a little bit of a... Um, you know, you're, you're mixing these two codes and the, these two codes are supposed to be pure and mixing them somehow adds this, this element of impurity to it. And so code switching had been looked down upon in the linguistics field as like, you know, this debasement of languages. Mm. Um, and then folks came along and said, no, actually code switching is, is standard. Like people code switch in really predictable ways. Look, there are patterns here that's trying to sort of normalize this, but still what, what the, framing of code switching does in its very element is say that there exist these standard languages, which are linguistic realities, and those must be preserved at all costs. Mm -hmm. When we know that what I had said before, people's language use is so much more fluid than that. Yep. So I think there are these two different ways that the uh, idea of translanguaging um, challenges this notion of code switching, the one that Christy talked about, about needing to conform to a dominant and thus changing the way you are. And then also this idea of like debasing standards, um, which I think are both things that translanguaging comes in, steps in and says, we want to think about this in a new way, which is to value the practices of people. Hmm. I love that. Thank you, Sarah. I mean, so ridiculously powerful, but that's what I mean about respectability politics. Just as teachers, we had done this thing of, okay, you better be prepared you have to go on a field trip today and you are going to have to shake somebody's hand and you're going to have to say this, that, and the other thing. And there may be some coaching there. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to write this paper, but we are getting to a point of children are bringing their full selves to every aspect, even in an internship. Adults are bringing their full selves and then not being apologetic about it. But again, I feel like translanguaging is code switching 6.0. Mm. There's no apology. It's a new way to think about it. And I have to say, I'm embarrassed. Half of the stuff, more than half of the stuff that Sarah and Chris and Karen have talked about, I never learned in any sort of education course. But it's, it's just about time that all of us got a piece of this. And for teachers especially, it provides real muscle against administration who might not. We love administration, but they are in the same boat that we are. Mm -hmm. They've never learned this thing. And we're all limited by what your teacher taught you. Mm -hmm. So you, you said a word before, Christy, Ebonics. Um, so for somebody of a certain um, maybe who who brings a perspective from a time when that that term was being used more um, you know and they say oh this is just a new way of thinking of ebonics um, a you know we don't really use ebonics anymore um, but can you just 
respond to that, like pretend I'm that person, how do you help bring them along? Well, I think part of what makes Ebonics problematic is not acting like this is just a birth of new language of being American, again, to separate Ebonics. Because all of a sudden, when, again, I'm older, when Jane Pauley and Katie Cork were had some pieces that were clearly from Ebonics, but really... If we talk about American advertising right now, I'd say half of it is in, quote, Ebonics, those terms that you knew were clearly black culture, which has taken over the United States. So Ebonics is just American language at this point. Mm. Nice. Can I um, – uh, I'm going to uh, – when I was trying to think about an illustration of – this phenomenon of, um, you know, language sort of coming in and out. One of the characters who uh, came to me right away just because I've listened to his voice for so long. And and he's somebody I admire, admire very deeply. Um, so Chris Emden, uh, on this show, we've um, we have broadcast a couple of uh, talks with Chris and um, – and so I want to I want to share this clip just as a place for us to talk from about um, this kind of uh, language being about the identity of a person. It's a scream like they was like they were starting on the world because they felt as though they had the technology, right? And then what happened is people in France started hacking the Minitel. And we started hacking the Minitel. They started using it for modes of communication, etc. And they were the advent of what we see today, even in social media, was existing on a Minitel in like 1980s, right? So all this goes down for a while, but guess what happened? Then the French was so busy stunting, they wasn't innovating. So they were too busy professing the benchmarks they've met, which can happen to us. Oh, what? I'm a computer science teacher. That's innovative. It's creative. Without, so now you stunt, and by, by stunting your... Y'all get what I get mean by stunting? Yeah. Like a double entendre, right? Because yeah. you are stunting on folks, then you're stunting your progress. Somebody in here don't understand anything I'm saying because my colloquialism is... is do, y'all, do y'all teach in the hood or not? Like, like no cap. Like, y'all really are not... We got it, we got it. So, so what, I, what I love about uh, Chris is that, you know, when you, when you get to see Chris... Uh, Dr. Chris Emden is at Columbia University, and everyone should go and and this is uh, free free advertisement. Go and and buy his books and uh, check out uh, for white folks who teach in the hood. Um, when Chris drops into a, a room full of educators and um, is talking in this case about uh, how you know the French are are uh, stunting on. Um, um, themselves in the world uh, in in two different respects. Um, he's somebody who I think of all the time when I think about uh, this idea that if for educators, no matter who you are, but very mindful of who you are in any classroom, um, for us to be culturally responsive, which is a another sort of buzz phrase that's being uh, thrown around in in good ways, but is really important that we make sure we have really concrete practice uh, that underpins it, because we don't want it to become uh, the the buzz of of your. Um, but one of the things that he really professes and, and everybody can check out, uh, hashtag hip hop ed, uh, on Twitter and, and check out some of the stuff that they're doing there is that hip hop as a language, um, and what it has brought to the identity of the young people who you may or may not be teaching in your classroom, depending on, on where you are, though, I would say if you are in America, uh, or any place else in the world, for that matter, likely hip hop is a part of um, their language. 
Um, so I love this example. I love watching Chris talk because so so many examples will come out as he sort of um, traverses uh, the the many aspects of of his identity. Um, so I I want to just talk about the we're talking about translanguaging in the context. Like I, I think the theory and and practice have been um, tied to bilingual education, which in the U.S. has been very focused on Spanish and French for a very long time, um, and. Dr. Garcia talks about the importance of having one aspect of language being what the institution can test, right? And that that's not not important. It is important, but it's it is not the identity of the person, right? So, um, hip hop, in for example, is not a language that the institution cares to test, right? Um, but I wonder if you all can just talk a little bit about whether it's it's hip hop or whatever other part of an identity that a young person is bringing into um, the class. I think about my own kids and I think about my son who brings sort of Internet speak into his language all the time. Um, what happens when we move into spaces that are not being tested by the institution? Um are they still as important for the educator to understand and apply a translanguaging frame to Sarah? Can you start and just, what do you think about that? So there's, um, there's a sort of, there's translanguaging as theory and then there's translanguaging as pedagogy. Um, translanguaging theory is this idea that all that people bring in, especially multilingual bilingual people bring in all of their language resources to make sense and to learn. Translanguaging pedagogy is this idea that teachers should, and this comes out of um, work from Dr. Garcia with Kate Seltzer and and um, and uh, Ibarra Johnson um, and Susana Ibarra Johnson. And uh, translanguaging pedagogy says that teachers have a stance that they apply, that they value those resources that students bring in, and they understand that those are to be leveraged in their education. Um, so once you have that stance, then it's like, okay, how do I do this? So you, the first step is really learning about those communication resources and assets that children bring into the classroom. Um, one of the teachers on our project, uh, Ana Castillo, when we had a design meeting and we were talking about how are we going to introduce Scratch to your kids? And the um, idea I had from having worked at the Global Kids Organization and introducing Scratch many times as an educator, I say, we usually talk about it as a play. Um, and she said, well, my students still watch plays, mm. but I know that they watch telenovelas every night with their families. So telenovelas are a kind of language and genre and the way that you're sort of talking about hip hop that students in her class were interested in and important to mention that's not necessarily something all kids or all Latinx kids even are going to be familiar with or using or have as part of their repertoire. But we thought let's leverage that in, in knowing that students are bringing telenovelas. It comes with a kind of like tropes around drama and costuming and language use and then so we use that as a way to think about, all right, if, if Scratch is like a novella, right, you've got actors, you've got a stage, you've got props, how can we make those connections to code? And so we built on that example. Um, and that's part of the sort of second part of translanguaging pedagogy, which is all about design. Once you have that stance, applying it to how you design and then also how you react to kids in the moment, uh, which are called shifts in, in, in that work. Mm. Um, and I can describe an example of a, of a shift if, if you think yes, that would please. be interesting for teachers to hear. In the course of teaching that telenovela lesson um, with her students, another teacher at the school, Ashley uh, Guilamo, was sort of kind, kind of like uh, she, she'd ask the kids to look at this code. And one of the code blocks, which uh, in the Spanish version of Scratch, it says deslizar, which if anyone who's familiar with Scratch, that's the glide code mm. when, when a sprite glides from one side to another. And when I asked a student about it and I said, deslizar, what does that mean? 
And I pointed to the code and the student stood up from his chair and slid across the floor. And after a minute, he was also gesturing and pretending like he was swinging a baseball bat. Mm. And he was like, deslisa, deslisa. And I was like, oh, this student is making a reference to how this word deslizar is used in baseball. Mm. We got to build on that. Like this is now going to be the metaphor that helps students support their understanding of what deslizard and mm. what this code can do. So that would be an example of a shift in practice. You see how a student is using or taking up a term and you build on it. Right. So the the uh, for a for a a translanguaging noob like myself, I might I might be all no 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 no, not baseball. Yeah. Right. Or you might not even notice that it happened. Right. And I think that goes back to Karen's point about awareness. Like if you don't, if you're not aware of the, the different kinds of language practices that students are bringing into the classroom, mm. you won't know when it's time to build on something. It won't. And it's not, which is not to say, um, you know, it's not a process. I feel mm. like they're looking back. I was doing a lot of research. I recorded students talk and I was like, oh, that would have been an amazing opportunity. Yeah. There's a lot of missed opportunities. But this idea of being open to that yeah. is at the core of translanguaging pedagogy. Yeah. Karen, um, can you describe for me what your dream, right? You are some, you are a, a um, master master educator at this stage of your career and somebody who has um, tons and tons of experience. If you were to describe what training you wish had happened for you, and um, in, in so doing, what you think new educator training should look like um, such that our outcomes are thinking about how we show up in the classroom is different in the years to come. What would that look like for you? Okay, so for new educators, I think it would be valuable if they're trained first with by other teachers. I think that's very valuable. And that has been teaching in practice, not, you know, in theory, but, you know, that were has experienced a lot of experience in the classroom. That would be great for new teachers. Um, you know, and especially for, for translanguaging, for them to be trained in this, because I know in the past, I didn't know anything about this. So, um, it would be valuable for them to know um, because I even know from in my school, some teachers, they have no idea what translanguaging is. So that would be great for, for them to, to either has, have um, some, you know, PDs, professional development training on this because it's very valuable yeah. in the classroom. And, and for the educator who says, um, look, you know, I was maybe I'm first generation in the U.S., but I, I uh, Spanish is my first language, for example. Um, you know, and I, like I know this stuff. You don't have to tell me about translanguaging. What do you say to a colleague who um, thinks they know this practice because they come with uh, language of their own? Do you still need to do this training? Yes, you still need to do because we don't not only have Spanish kids now, we have a growing population of Arabic kids. So that is also valuable for other kids with other languages that maybe you don't know. You know, so yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And if I could jump in, can Chris? Can you hear me? Okay. I would. I would love to have you jump in. I um. I think one of the most important things we can say here is that the main reason translanguaging and computer science go together is because we need to ask ourselves who owns and runs the conversation that we have through and with technology. And that question about who gets to be part of the conversation with technology goes way beyond whether a kid is a Spanish-English emergent bilingual. It really does get to this question of who's allowed to have their ideas become part of what we're saying in the technology. And just like the Chris Emden quote that you played for us before, 
I think it's really important to remember that translanguaging is about breaking down these boundaries. And it's not just boundaries between uh, named languages like, oh, this is official Spanish, this is official American English, but also breaking down boundaries that um, shut people out of the conversation. Hmm. And so when we think about um, how computer programs are written, who writes the computer programs, who designs the software that we create in our world, uh, there's a lot of policing that happens. And some of it is about whether or not you speak uh, the English that's commonplace in Silicon Valley. But a lot of it's also about um, who gets a seat at the table in order to be able to bring their own ways of communicating to bear. And again, as somebody who's been in the computer science space, uh, since it was mostly about hobbyists building personal computers from kits, uh, we need to recapture some of what uh, allowed people to find many ways in the door and many ways to be part of the conversation. Mm. Um, there's another important concept we use in our project uh, that comes from computer science called literate programming. And this comes from a, a very famous computer scientist, Donald Knuth. He was a professor at Stanford for many years. And his sort of argument back in the 70s and 80s was that we need to remember that these programs are not just inert objects, nor are they just, um, you know, solutions to some engineering problem, but they're creations. They're part of a conversation. Mm. And so for us, uh, as we think about computer science education for all, we need to remember that people can be marginalized in those conversations, not just based on what their home language is or what kind of jargon or dialect or, you know, pop culture references they use, but also on, on whether or not we create spaces in these classrooms where these kids can talk in all of their ways. And technology can be an important way for kids to have a voice. Maybe mm. maybe they're not super fluent in any written languages, but here's a place where you can express yourself with blocks that you drag around on a screen. Um, we've also been, you know, talking to folks who worry about universal design for learning. What about kids who have different kinds of access to spoken or written language because of their own, uh, neurodiversity? Yeah. Those are really important aspects to why translanguaging matters to everybody and not just to teachers who work with emergent bilinguals. Yeah. That's a uh, the last question that I had for you, Chris. Um, you basically just answered. Um, so you are both um, uh, you are are both wise and um, a mind reader. So I uh, the last can I, can I ask one question for Karen because yeah, I think please. it would be really awesome to hear her talk a little bit about this. Go ahead. Um, when you, Karen, when you had students participate in your Hurricane Maria unit, how did you feel like code supported the points that Chris was just making, like their expression around that? I don't know if you want to briefly just talk about what the Hurricane Maria unit was and then a little bit about how code or scratch supported their expression. Yeah, um, Hurricane Maria, as you know, was back in... 2017 and um it was something that the kids you know uh they were affected by it because um either they had family members and they have their own experience of living through hurricanes so um uh, when we first introduced code um it gave them a way of of expressing um what a hurricanes does the the immediate effects of a hurricane once a hurricane happens, you know, uh, electricity, there's no power, there's no water. So things like that, they were able to express. And um, in my uh, class, which is science, you know, we talked about what models are, uh, that they are physical models, they're computational models, which is used to, to illustrate, to communicate something. So it was very interesting. Um, the kids were able to interview their parents. Uh, they also interviewed activists in order to know more about hurricanes and the effects and what happens immediately after. Um, it went a little bit political because they saw um, in the news uh, what Trump did when he went to Puerto Rico after the, the storm, like he was um, 
just throwing paper towels. So they were they they had their own reactions about that too. And um and then afterwards uh, they were able using translanguaging, of course, were able to um, uh, build a code showing the effects of Hurricane Maria. And they were able to show their family. Their parents came to the classroom and they were able to show their their codes. Uh, the administrators also uh, came as well and saw their codes. And also um, we had um, people from the field of, um, what was it, the, the STEM, I forgot the name, Sarah. Oh, um, the American... The American Association of Latinos in STEM. <laughs> yes, yes, the American Association of Latinos in STEM. They came in also and they were able to show their codes to them and ask them questions. And and they were excited, especially um, having, you know, seeing people from the field of, you know, that they make good money. They were a little bit impressed, like, oh, I could take this field of computer science that, you know, it would be good for, for me, for my family and all of that. So. So yeah, it was it was amazing. They really they really took that project and made it their own, which mm. is they you know they made that connection and and it was great. It was great, yeah. And then the next year, I continued with the same project, but for the long term effects because as we know in Puerto Rico, it was devastated. Um, a lot of people they had to come here to the states, and you know the island was basically without power for many many months. So we did a part two of that experiment of the long-term effects of Hurricane Maria. And there, um, I took it to an, an, another level looking at data because I saw that in science, the kids very struggled looking at interpreting data. So they had to see what qualitative data is and quali uh, qualitative and, um, oh my gosh, <laughs> the quality. The two types of data, Sarah, quantitative. Quantitative, yes, I'm sorry. That's the data. So they were looking at that and they were also interviewing and they were also making physical models. And then from the physical model, putting it into a computational model. So, yeah, and we had the parents come in. They shared the code with them as well. And at the end, who came again? I forgot. Some people came at the end and they showed their codes to them as well and and yeah and this year we did of COVID-19 so you know I try to look for themes that the kids really connected with something yeah. that they that they were able to you know internalize and and um do a project and make it their own which is the best thing. Karen what I love uh, among the things that I love about your example um is talking about bringing families into this. Yes. And I think yeah. um, one of the takeaways right away from this conversation for me is that I think, um, you know, language has the ability to separate us um, if looked at one way. I think language, if looked at another way, has the ability to bring us together Um it doesn't need to look one way. It doesn't need to be that we all need to learn the same language. It's that we can um, we can build on each other's code, yeah. in a sense, and um, and that's so powerful to me. I I think of uh, you know families coming into that class and learning you know new language from some of the experience that they're taking from seeing what their students are doing, and it's a powerful thing to think that as a part of our students learning part of what they might be doing is also generating new language for communities and families to see each other, um, see each other and, and, mm -hmm. and, um, and make sense of the world in that way. So um, that's just my, my very quick uh, takeaway and there are so many um so many things to take from this conversation i think it's a really good place to wrap because i think this has been a really good introduction and we have lots more conversations uh to have beyond this but i just want to say what a pleasure it has been and how grateful i am for your time joining this conversation each of you thank you so much and i hope we get to do it again soon 
Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you, Karen. We know that you're still in the throes of your school year, like just finishing up and it's been the weirdest school year ever. And we just are so appreciative that you could also make it. (laughs) No problem, no problem. My pleasure. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. Thank you.